All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to continue our journey here through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I hope you guys are well. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians, has been addressing different issues, right? In chapters 1 through 3, he uh, gives himself an introduction, gives promises about how God's doing great things in their church. And then he's going to go on to talk about divisions that are happening in the church. Literally, the word there is schisms or tears, right, that are occurring. And these, in this particular issue that he's addressing, he's saying that the, the tears that are occurring in their church are over different teachers. Not just that they, somebody says, hey, I enjoy listening to this per- person teach or that person teach. Or, you know, I like this lady's books or that. You know, nothing like that. It's that they, they're, they're associating themselves with that person as like a party, and then they're saying that that person is superior to other people, not just in their teaching skills or something that speaks to them or something like that, but actually creating parties over it. And it's Peter and Paul, Apollos and Jesus, right? Those are the factions that are being created. Now, intermingled in those first three chapters about those factions is, is this idea that is, is carried through, but not as thick the entire book, one of the themes. And that is that there's godly wisdom, wisdom that comes from above, wisdom that's from the Lord that's is transferred through the Holy Spirit, and also just looking at life and having a worldview according to biblical ideology or, or biblical ideas or, con, or considerations, looking through life through the lens of Jesus, as it were. And then you have earthly wisdom or wisdom that's from the old man, the old nature, the fallen nature, the sinful nature, the, the, the flesh. All of those are biblical synonyms for that sinful nature that we inherited from our parents all the way back to Adam, right? So being human, being fallen. So wisdom comes from one of those two pools. It comes through the idea of uh, self-centeredness, the the sinful nature, making sure that I'm supreme, making sure that I'm taken care of, uh, not in a, obviously there's a way to take care of yourself and mental health and all that, We're we're not saying that, but there's also a difference of just trying to dominate and insist and rule, right? And then there's the nature that comes from above, which is that of Christ and the idea of loving one another, self-sacrifice, being willing to lose so that others might win for the sake of Christ, these different ideas, and obviously that manifests in a lot of different ways. He's going to go on and talks about, we looked at last, uh, lawsuits last week, looked at all sorts of different things. So this week we're going to talk about fornication. Yay! So here's the thing. I think we've all sat through teachings, Right? where it was like, don't fornicate. So what's fornication? Fornication, and the word here actually is translated in the NIV, sexual immorality. It's the coin Greek or the Koine Greek word pornea, which might sound familiar to us, right? And what pornea is, is any sexual lewdness, whether it's written, whether it's in pictures, uh, whatever it might be. And we might think, oh, pornography is a new thing. Like, like no, it's not. Uh, I, I don't encourage you per se, but you can go and look at uh, some of the um, mosaics, if you will, of Rome. Uh, some of the pictures that were in Pompeii, it was very normal in public restrooms and in bars to have kind of uh, over-exaggerated uh, pornographic paintings on the walls and so forth. So it was a very sexualized culture. I know a lot of times we, we can look at our culture and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. This is, yeah, we don't hold a candle to Rome. And neither does anybody in Europe or anything like that. Rome was a significantly more over-sexualized population. And so the way, one, I think one of the reasons that they use the word pornea in the, the New Testament so often is because it's not just intercourse, right? It's not just coitus. It's the idea of a, a sexual immorality, 
uh, that we know can manifest in a lot of different ways. And perhaps it has in our lives or we've observed it in others. So today, the goal is not to just say fornication bad. Fornication literally, by definition, is sex outside of marriage, right? If, if you're married and having sex with someone who is not your partner, uh, then that would be adultery. If you're unmarried and you're having sex with someone who, is, who you're not married to, well, you're unmarried, so of course you're not married to them. That would be fornication, right? So, but hopefully we can get away from just fornication bad, which is true, but talk about why. See, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the most important things in life is, is why. Why does it work that way? Why does God say it's bad? And I've seen the bumper sticker. You know, God said it, that settles, I believe it, that settles it. And that's okay, that's good. That's a good attitude to have, to, to look at the scripture and, and those type of things and say, I'm willing to accept these things. But I think that, when we, especially when we look at fornication in its, in, in its kind of entirety throughout culture and in our own lives, how you know, it's tempted us or it's worked in us or whatever it might be, why is it something that God says multiple times throughout the scripture, this is not something we want to engage in? Uh, we also have, you know, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, you have a purity movement, and now there's like a huge backlash against the purity movement, like, oh, it was terrible, it was this, it was that. Hopefully we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, as a purity as a direction and why it's useful. But having said that, we're going we're gonna to jump into chapter 6 and read all about it, as it were. Verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will tell you not to be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, that's the word pornia, but, the, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body. <clears throat> but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So in Corinth, now, if we think, we've talked a lot about it, and I mentioned it briefly. In Corinth, Corinth was founded around 800 B.C., and as uh, we've talked about in the past, it is considered to be one of the most defiled, if you like to put it that way, cities that there is. One of the most worldly cities. One of the richest cities and one of the most worldly cities. Uh, temples to Apollos, uh, they absolutely engaged in the Greek and later on Roman polytheism, meaning worshiping multiple gods. We know uh, whether it's, um, well, many of the different gods without listing them all. Uh, the, the, the Greek and the Roman gods, many of them were worshipped with pedophilia, just to give you an idea, uh, because it's in here. So essentially, if I was going to say, go worship Aphrodite, I would get some money, or I would get uh, a, hunk of, a good hunk of meat, like if I slaughtered a goat, something like that, I could bring rice, I could bring wheat, some sort of commodity. And uh, I would go to the temple, and there were the... Uh, the, the, the the, the temple, depending on what city you're at, some, some temples in some places, like in Athens, for example, uh, you know, in the different, um, was it Aphrodite, they, they estimate that some of these temples had about 10,000 prostitutes. 
And that, that was from ages about 11 and up, okay? And so it was very normal that I, you would go and you would drop off your, whatever your offering was, and then you would have sex with one of those prostitutes, oftentimes a minor. Uh, and so that was your worship. It, that was the, how you worshiped that God and you gave, and then the hope was that that God would bless you, whether it was fertility or land or money or whatever it might be. So that's the kind of the culture that they live in, right? We've talked about the fact that the streets of Corinth, some, some of the streets of Corinth uh, were lined with phallic symbols uh, and, and statues and stuff like that. So this is the culture that he's writing to. I'm not, I'm not trying to be crass. I'm not trying to be uh, dirty. I'm just trying to say that this is who he's writing to, okay? People that are absolutely inundated with sexuality. Every day, all day, that's what it is. Does that make sense? And so our culture is going there, right? Our advertisements, our shows, most, the vast majority of our shows, many of the cartoons that for kids now uh, that are coming out uh, uh, talking about sex and sexuality and all these different things, awakening things in kids, all, all these things. And, and there, there's huge detriment. We'll, we'll talk about that lastly. But in this case, what's happening in, in verse 12 in, in Corinth, the, he's, he's quoting them. I have the right to do anything. And he says it twice. So this is the, the NIV, the ESV, and the NASB. Uh, there might be some others. Put quotes around it. So Paul is not saying, he's not making the statement, I have the right to do anything. And, and maybe you've heard people say that, uh, that they have liberty or these different things. Uh, this, that's not a biblical quote. That's a Corinthian quote. I have the right to do anything. And in this case, it's a quote that's being made by Corinthians that is a misquote or a misunderstanding, or perhaps deliberate, perhaps unintentional, of biblical liberty. So what is biblical liberty? See, when you got saved, this is important because it's part of salvation. What Christ did at Calvary, in brief, right? He forgave sin, past, present, and future. Right? If we were to go back and look at Romans, to, and we look at Corinthians, we look at Galatians, Galatians 3, all these different places, when Christ was crucified for sin, when, our, uh, when human beings took the Lord of glory and nailed him to a cross, which was brought about at the right time, at the right place, and allowed by God, right? when that happened, that blood that was shed was a picture of all the old covenant and really even though it wasn't a picture of, of others, it's the, it, was, it, it showed all these, whether it was Druidic or whether it was Apollos, all these you know, different um, false religions, they were all by blood too, weren't they? Many of them were by blood. In fact, the idea goes all the way back to Nimrod in Genesis, the idea of blood sacrifice, a virgin giving birth, a, a savior coming. This, this idea... Uh, has, been, has been replicated uh, falsely for, for, since the, the dawn of human beings. All that to say is that human beings know that there's a cost for moral wrong. We know it intrinsically. We feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel all those things. And so what Christ did as a picture of the Jewish sacrifices, he shed his blood on our behalf. Now we know from the prophecies that Christ's blood... Right, Because the Bible told us when he was going to come. He told us what he was going to do. He told us when he would rise from the dead. Those are all biblical prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. That when he did that, and that blood was shed, that was the payment for our sin. You might be familiar with 1 John, when John writes a letter to the churches. And he says, 
He says it was, it was the propitiation, or actually is the propitiation for our sin. In other words, the fancy Christian word for the exact right payment. So when Christ paid on the cross with his blood, he paid for our sin. That's why you and I today are forgiven. We're not forgiven because we did or didn't fornicate. We're not forgiven because we are or not greedy. We're not forgiven because we've lived good lives. We're not forgiven because we repented a bunch this week if we were naughty. We were all forgiven because of the blood of Christ. That's why in Galatians chapter 3 or 5, Paul calls the cross, he calls it scandalous. The scandal of the cross. The reason the cross is scandalous is because it forgave sin, which some of us, maybe all of us, we have a really hard time with that. We go, well, okay, maybe it for, when, you, when, you, when you believed God, then, it, then you got forgiven, but now you kind of got to keep a short account. Have you heard that? You got to keep a short account. And the implication of keep a short account is what? It's that you were forgiven, but now you kind of earn some more sin and you got to make sure that's taken care of because God forbid that you don't have a short account and then you stand before him and he's like, well, you, the last time you repented was here and uh, there's been some F-bombs, some fornication, uh, maybe some online rudeness and now you died, so to hell with you. See, Christ's crucifixion and his payment was the once for all payment for sin. This is really important. So when you're sitting here today, you are forgiven of all of your sin. All of your sin that you've ever done, all of your sin that you ever will do, because Christ in time paid the eternal or out of time price for sin. Okay, That doesn't work for a justice system. We're not saying we're going to do that with criminals in our justice system today, but it works for sin. It works for an eternal relationship between you and the Lord. So when a Christian gets forgiven, we were also set free from the law. The law was written ordinances, and this is also another big concept that we could talk about Abraham and all, you know, all that. But for our intents and purposes, the law, whether it was just a, a moral law that we understood in our conscience, or when the written law came, or a law that God has had personal interaction with us with that we know we ought or ought not to do. But what light, if we can put that, whatever light we've sinned against, all it could ever do is condemn us. So when the, the Levitical law came forward, take the Ten Commandments, if you like, the Mosaic law. Uh, when, the, when the Levitical or the Mosaic law came forward, it could never make a person righteous, Right? It was never designed to make a person righteous. We know that from 2 Corinthians 2 and 3. We know that from the Old Testament. It could never make a person right with God. It was designed to show us how wrong we are, who God is and what righteousness is and who we are. So because when we got saved, we got forgiven of our sin, the law no longer loomed over us. Romans 7 said that we died to the law. So the law no longer has power over us. And the power of sin is the law, right? So the, the fulcrum or the, the leverage that sin had against us was through the law. But now that we've died to the law, sin no longer has that power to separate us from God in an eternal sense, okay? But what does sin do now? Since I'm forgiven, sin still affects my soul, doesn't it? It still hurts the people around me, doesn't it? If I'm rude to people around me, I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did. 
but I'm creating bad fruit, aren't I? If I'm rude to people, if I go to SIDS and I'm rude because the line takes too long, or I'm rude because I didn't have the special bubbly I wanted, or if I'm rude because whatever it might be, right? And then I'm rude to the cashier and I go, I can't believe what a garbage store this is. Here's an invite to my church, right? Are they going to take it seriously? Are they going to have anything to do with you? No, because your sin, which is complaining, you go, well, sin complaining? Yeah, actually, multiple times in the New Testament, this says, don't complain. So our complaining minimized the impact of the kingdom of heaven to someone that may not know Christ. So sin always destroys. There's never a time where it doesn't destroy. There's never a time where it works out for the end. That's not real. God is able to use things sometimes, but it doesn't mean that the sin, in fact, it's even addressed, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, God forbid. No, absolutely not. We don't do that. So we were forgiven. We have liberty now that we're forgiven. Here's some biblical places that we have liberty. We can eat whatever we want. That, in the Jewish law and the law of old, you, you couldn't eat certain things. Now you can eat whatever you want. Paul is so bold in, when he writes to the Corinthians that he says, when you go to that, to that particular uh, idol or that, that, that false god's temple and you buy meat, it's a long story, they had cheaper meat, but when you go to that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, when you go there and you eat your meat, he's, he goes so far as to implicate you have the liberty as a Christian to go to this false temple and get some food there and eat it. How many of us are like, ooh, I there's a Buddha in there. I can't go get Thai, right? No, we're not under the law. You can go get Thai food. If your conscience bothers you, you probably shouldn't do it. If, if the, the Buddha in the corner with a banana does not bother you, then go and eat your Thai food because we know that that idol is nothing and we're not defiled by that. It doesn't creep into us. If you start getting tempted and you're like, hmm, that Buddha seems pretty solid. You know, I like the six arms. I like the, this is, then maybe that's not for you. But so you have liberty. Drinking, we have liberty. The Bible says that it's not wise and we ought not to be drunk. But as far as drinking, having a beer or wine or whatever, the Bible never forbids that. So we, there are places where we have Christian liberty. If you struggle with drunkenness or you can't have just one, then you probably shouldn't take advantage of that liberty. So what's being said here is Paul is courting Corinth because they're making a wrong conclusion on biblical liberty. And obviously there's a lot more to be said about biblical and Christian liberty. And this is the conclusion they're coming to. Now some, some translations say, all things are lawful to me, right? Maybe your translation says that. The NIV here says this, I have the right to do anything. This is, isn't it funny that this is our culture's cry? I have the right to do anything. And so Paul is writing back to them, and his first objection is this, but not everything is beneficial. So that's really important. I have the right to go to an idol's temple, which we don't really have here, but, and I actually like Thai food, so... I'm not trying to say anything negative about Thai food, but let's just say we're going to go to our, any, any, any uh, Chinese food place, right? They have like the lucky cat waving his arm, you know, and all that. So it's, you go in there, right? That's all idolatry. It's all luck-based. It's all trying to summon good things to themselves through ornaments and devotions, okay? That's what it is. So let's say I go to Chinese or I go to Thai and there's Buddha in the corner. You know, if I go in there and if, if I, let's say you and I are going together, well, I'll make, I'm the weak one. You and I are going there together, and I stop at the door, and I'm like, uh, yeah, they have a Buddha in there. Like, ooh, I don't want to sacrifice to Buddha. 
I don't want to give people that, that worship Buddha money. You're like, you must never spend money anywhere then if that's your issue. But, but let's just say that's my deal, right? So that thing, if you say, you know what? Buck up, James. Just What's your problem? The Buddha's not real. Just come on, let's get some food. It's really good. And I go in there, and the whole time I'm like sweating because in my conscience, I'm disobeying God. Then as, as Paul will go on in, in later to talk about in 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, all over the place, Galatians 5, your liberty has become a stumbling block to me because I have the weaker faith. And so your liberty has become unbeneficial to me. Does that make sense? So that's in a classic uh, case of working through liberty with other believers. In this case, they're talking about something that is completely forbidden Old and New Testament, sexual immorality. And what they're saying is, hey, you know what? All things are lawful to me. And Paul says, that's not beneficial. The second part of it is this. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will, be mastered, uh, I will not be mastered by anything. So the first part that he's talking about is fruit. The second is being dominated. It's nature, being addiction, these type of things. And they say, hey, I have the right to do this. And he says, no, but you don't have the right to be dominated. And there can be an implication there. You know, one of the stats I pull out all the time, and it stayed the same for about 10 years now. You can check them out for yourself. There's a secular website. It's called fightthenewdrug.org, and it's about porn. There's no porn on the website, but it's about porn. And what it is, is it's statistically, so statistically, the United States of America, in the church and out of the church, 67% of men regularly look at pornography. Two out of three, okay? The number that might shock you is 37% of women now. Think about that. 37% of women regularly look at pornography, okay? Here's the, what I want to point to for the second point. 70% of both the 67% of men and the 37% of women. So 70% in both genders say they have tried to stop and are unable to. Okay? They've tried to stop looking at pornography. They've, whatever, you know, gone, gotten prayer, whatever they're doing, they've tried to stop and they cannot do it. I don't know if, you, you know, recently, uh, well, I guess it was last year, I don't know anything about musicians but uh, somehow it popped up uh, on my newsfeed. So you guys, is it Billie Eilish? Is that her name? She went on an interview with Howard Stern, which obviously I don't, don't recommend going with Howard Stern. I just read the blurb. She went on there. So she's real popular. She's secular. She's not into Jesus at all, right? She's nothing, no moral compass in that sense. Very famous singer. Says that she started looking at pornography by the time she was 11, and that rape was normalized to her through pornography. And so she had, now she's in her 20s, and she has a, an incredibly dysfunctional and destructive sex life because she has no idea what sex should be like. Okay? So this is, this is Joe Heathen here that we're talking about. So here's the point. Paul, he says, I have the right to do anything, which they don't. They're misusing that. But then they, they go on to say this. He says, but I will be mastered by none. And here's the point. Sexual drive, sex drive, or lust, or whatever. I don't, I don't like to call sex drive lust because sex was created for marriage to satisfy bodily urges, if we could just call it that. I know that's a little bit crass, but just to call it that. In fact, in chapter 7, Paul's going to go on and say, and we may not like this, but in chapter 7, Paul's going to say, do you burn with lust? You should go get married. <laughs> We're like, wait, you should? We'll talk about that next week, though, God willing. But the, the, the point is this. 
that, uh, what is the point, James? <laughs> the point is this, that this, that sexual addiction, whether it's in the form of pornography, whether it's in the form of actual sex acts, whether it's the form of prostitution, not that the prostitutes are sex, sexual addicts or something, but that that, that is, across the board is a very real and a very destructive thing that's happening. And it happened then and it happened now. And so that the, the, Paul's making this point. He says, no, what's, you, have, uh, you cannot be mastered by it. And, and again, to further that, that means it's possible to be mastered by it. And so we're called to not be mastered by it. And we'll talk about ways here in a minute. So he's going to go on there and he says, verse 13, another saying, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. So the saying is food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And Paul's reply is God will destroy them both. So they're making the point with food like, hey, I get hungry, I eat. And they're, they're taking that and they're applying it to sex. Hey, I get, you know, sexually excited and I have sex. I have desire, and so I satisfy it. This is perfectly normal. This is how humans work. It's a healthy thing. And Paul says, no, you know, at the end of the day, God's going to destroy both the body and food. But those things are not going to continue to exist. What's his, what's his point? They're temporal. Those things are temporal. But, they, but in, the, in the context of sex, it has an eternal uh, consequence. Well, eternal in the sense that it will cost us in our lives and do, and. and bereave us of blessing, blessing that we could carry into eternity with us. We'll, more about that in a moment here. The body, however, the second part of verse 13, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So he says, look, no matter how you feel and what urges you have, in this life, the body is for the Lord. Now, we don't have the time, but in, when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, which is the beginning of uh, kind of the spiritual giftings and spirituality and how that works out uh, in church and, and, and in our private lives, that what he's going to say is that we're members of the body of Christ, right? And so he's going to make this whole analogy and point out that Christ is the head. He's the head of the church. He's the brain. He's the one who sends the input. He's the one who sends the ideas. He's the one that goes to move the body, just like your brain sends input to your extremities and internally, and it causes things to happen. He says Christ is the head, and all of us are part of his body. And maybe your hand, maybe your foot, maybe your mouth, maybe your eye, all these different examples that he has, but that we're part of his body. So Paul is making the point here that our current body, and the word there is soma in the Greek, and it's not just uh, sarka. So when, whenever we're talking about flesh, like literally just this shell, right? Because we're not, we are not a body. We are souls, right, <laughs> that have a body. And someday this body will be gone, and our soul will be in a new body, right? If you were to do brain surgery, there's no soul hiding in there. Like all the cartoons, there's no little remote control person, right? It's just your soul. So whenever the Bible refers to, well, typically when the Bible refers to the body, this, just this thing, it uses the word sarca, dead flesh, where we get our word sarcophagus, where you put dead flesh, right? And so this word here, body, is not sarca, it's soma, which is more like person. It's, it's the whole body, all that you are, right? Just like when you get stressed out, certain things happen to your body. Why? Because you and your, your body and your soul are, are almost indistinguishable, right, at this point. Your soul uses an organic brain, who you are, to think and to 
act and to walk through this world with, right? The soul is inseparable, in a sense, right now from the body. It's your soma. It's what you are. It's your personality. It's your seed of emotions, your heart, you know, all these different things. And different cultures call that different things. Something I feel it, uh, the, the loins, the, the, which doesn't mean groin, but the loins, the, the, the heart, all these are different cultural ways that people refer to emotional seat, right? So he says your soma, your body, your person belongs to the Lord, and it's for the Lord. It's not for immorality. Will it fit in well with immorality? Sort of. And we'll talk more about that. But in the end, because sex is not just a, a physical sarka thing, it's a soma thing. Does that make sense? It's not just an only my body thing. It is also a my wholeness, my, my person thing, that it has certain consequences in this life. And he goes on to say, uh, after in verse 14, he says, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Now, these are profound doctrinal truths that are, he's one-lining. <laughs> so he's, he says, one, this body is dying, right? We know that. This body will perish, but it will be rose again. Right now, our soma belongs in this body, but one day, our soma will be renewed Philippians 3 tells us that he will renew these bodies or whatever is left with them. I don't know all the physics behind that. If you're, a lot of people are just dust now. The, 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 the soma will be renewed to a new body. Okay. So that being said, he, just pro, he proclaims that God has a purpose. And, and that would be great to expand another time. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Reiterating what he said. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So now what he's doing to prove his point about Soma is he's saying, he's taking, you know, in, in, obviously this is a generality, but I think we could agree that sex with a prostitute would be considered the most meaningless sex you could have, right? That sex with a prostitute would be purely sexual gratification. That's all you're trying to achieve. There may be some lonely people out there that are also trying to achieve relationship. And if that prostitute is willing to play along with that, they may feel like they've had that for a while. But realistically, Paul here is taking the most lowly, the most despised, the most empty sexual experience a person can have. And he's making the point it still affects you. His first point is this, shall I take what Christ has redeemed and bring that to an empty sexual experience? And the answer is never. He doesn't tell us why here, but he says, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to take the, you know, the, our spirit. He says, if we've raised with the Lord, that we're one spirit with him. So we, we don't want to take our spiritual reality and connection that we have with Christ and bring that in with uh, a prostitute. It would be grievous. It would be grievous not just because Christ, oh, I'm disappointed in you or something like that, but grievous that, that we are, instead of choosing an eternal and a wonderful relationship with Christ, we're acting out of something that was already in our heart probably for a while, and we're instead we're, we're, we're forsaking that, and we're now cheapening and going to just try to find sexual gratification which I think that we can agree that if you're going to prostitutes, if you're doing that, you're trying to find some sort of fulfillment, right? That's what you're trying to find. You think that by doing that, you will be fulfilled. You know, James Dobson, and I can't remember what year uh, Ted Bundy was executed, but James Dobson interviewed him the night before he was executed. Now, you can go see it on YouTube if you want. 
And one of the fascinating things about Ted Bundy, if you not recall, uh, he's killed 15 women. Pretty gnarly stuff. And what, you know how and Ted Bundy grew up in a Christian home? And I'm not saying everybody who looks at porn ends up like Ted Bundy, so don't, that's not my conclusion. But my point is Ted Bundy, with no uncertain terms, tells James Dobson, I started with porn. And this is the 70s. There's no phones, right? You can't just pull it. Any one of us could pull up porn right now without any issue. This is the 70s. You have to go to like the little rooms at the back of the you know, stores. And the, the, but they would, he found a couple. He started with JCPenney ads, looking at the JCPenney underwear ad. It's kind of a joke oftentimes. That's where he started. He ended up, him and his brother ended up finding porn mags in the trash once in a while because people would throw trash away at different locations at their neighborhood. And he started mulling over those. And then that late, when he was old enough, he started buying films. And then when it came to it, he's, what he said, it's interesting because he says, I'm not blaming pornography for my problem. I, pornography led me, a broken person, with bigger problems to an avenue where I did these things. And he got to the point where he said, the only way that I can feel gratified is if I act these things out that I'm witnessing. It's really interesting, really sad. There's something about sexual sin that changes the body, something about sexual sin that changes who we are, that actually forms new neural pathways in our brains, that forms inhibitions, it forms, it actually trains us. This is something that they uh, discovered, the, uh, some studies that you can read about on fightthenewdrug.org. Pornography, it's estimated that about 75% of it includes dominance or violence. And I won't go into that, but you can read about it if you want. And so what happens when you observe pornography, men and women, more men than women, but both, dopamine gets released into your brain. And so when you, dopamine is what makes you feel good. It's what makes you happy. Even you and I right now, if there's something that makes you happy, when you look at it, your brain recognizes that you like it, and then your brain releases dopamine. It's what methamphetamine does. The reason methamphetamine is one of the most addictive drugs on the planet, it literally makes the, the uh, um, oh, what do they call it, the dispensers basically, there's a better name for it. The, it causes your brain to puke dopamine, just to just <laughs> release it unbelievably. That's why it so often it takes one hit from meth and people are addicts because it gives you such a euphoria and a crazy thing. Heroin is some, some thing similar. Heroin is sometimes worth because it releases oxytocin, which we'll talk about more here in a minute. But all these things that are going on, all that Paul is talking about, he's saying, look, there is a fallout. Verse 16, do you not know? Remember, nine times in this book, six times in this chapter, he's going to use the phrase, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Again, soma. The most empty of sexual experiences is united. There's something that happens in our person when we have sex with another person. Even if it's in our mind, in our conscious, it's meaningless, and it's just for the express reason of having some sort of release. He says, don't you understand that, one, that you become one body? And then he quotes Genesis. For it is said, the two become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he is not saying that if you go to a, a, a prostitute that you are married to her. That's a, a weird idea. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this is how precious sex is. 
that it actually brings two personalities, two somas, two bodies, whole persons together. And even if you go to have a meaningless relationship, it is impossible for human beings to have a meaningless sexual relationship. That's what he's saying. He's going to go on and he's going to say this. Flee from sexual immorality. All their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins uh, sexually sins against their own body. Now, there's a lot of things. I, I've, I've thought about this for, this is going to sound dramatic. I've thought about this for years, decades. What in the world does this mean? And just through a personal journey, you know, I, I, talk, I love psychology. I'm not saying I think it's the answer. I just love thinking how people work. So there's some interesting things that happen. And again, I'm going to keep this as PG-13 as I can. Both men and women um, synthesize, create oxytocin. So oxytocin is used in a variety of different things. It's, it, for women, they have significant more amounts than men. You might have heard it as the love hormone or the hug hormone. So if you sit next to someone and you hug them and you like them, your brain will release oxytocin. And what that does is it makes you feel close to them. So our feelings are hormone-based sometimes. That might scare us, but it's the truth. You, you release that. And so during sex, when you're climaxing, both genders release a ton of oxytocin, more, significantly more in women than men. So why does that matter? It matters because oxytocin is how God has decided in the intermingling of the soul and the body, how to create lasting relationship, lasting affection, lasting care. It's why you feel so close to someone when you're sexually intimate with them if you're starting off from a good place. If you're having cheap sexual interactions or casual sex, what happens is, and some studies have shown, and it's debatable, so I'm not going to make a hard, fast rule, that is specifically in women, after five partners, women begin to synthesize significantly less oxytocin. And it makes them unable to feel attached to their partners. So it's interesting because he's, Paul says this. He says, when we commit these sexual sin, whether it's, it's pornea, right? Any, any gamut. He says we sin against our own body. And, and, and in my opinion, you could throw it away, is this is some of the reality he's talking about. Or when, you know, uh, for example, women in their 30s and men, but more so women in their 30s, who've had more than 10 to 15 sexual partners are something like 80% more likely to be uh, uh, using, to be using um, marijuana and be considered alcoholics. Because what happens, it happens to men, but more so in women, and that's probably another teaching for another day. It's not weakness, it's makeup. It's how people are built. And so what happens is that repeated cheap sex or casual sex that's just been initiated for whatever purpose it might be, and there's a lot of research about that, um, that we can't talk about now with one minute left. But the, 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 the research goes to show that what happens in people's lives, they begin to self-medicate because they've cheapened themselves. They've given their soma, or we've given our soma away so many times, we feel unable to be safe with a human being. 
one of the reasons that sex is supposed to be such a celebration in marriage, because marriage is supposed to be, right? And I'm, I'm pretty considered it's only found that way in Christ, but I could be wrong. It's supposed to be the safest thing on the planet, right? It's supposed to be the place where your partner knows everything about you, your spouse knows everything about you, and you know everything about them, and they still accept you, and you still accept them. Right? They know all your weirdness. They know where you're chunky. They know where you're not. They know all the things, the, 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 the physical you know, intimacy, safety, the emotional intimacy and safety, the psychological safety, all those things. That's what's supposed to take place in marriage. Then you add God-given sex to that, sexual intimacy, and you have this overcharge and release of oxytocin that, that physiologically confirms a mental reality uh, uh, that, that, that God has created in our soul, and you have this recipe for something beautiful, right? So when we take that and we cheapen it, what, what, what can happen and what does happen, I'm not, here's the thing, I'm not saying that nobody can come back from this. I'm not saying that if you're, you know, super fornicator of the universe, that you're hopeless. We're not saying that. What we're saying is when we take sex and we cheapen it, when we take sexual activity and we, we, we don't keep it in the context that God's given us, as Paul says, we sin against our own body. We wreck ourselves. And it's funny because you can, you can interview, you can watch interviews. People that have been scorned or have had many sexual experiences with many breakups, they don't trust. In, we're speaking generally. Obviously, there can be outliers. They don't trust it's very hard for them to, to move forward in any kind of, uh, even if they're having sexual intimacy, any kind of psychological or mental intimacy. They stay guarded. And here Paul's just, he's just, you know, we can look at it and go, well, God's just a big jerk, and he says don't fornicate. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe. Or he's really smart. And he created us. And he says, I've, de- I've designed this thing that can create an incredible solidarity and an incredible uh, comfort in your life. And so the Corinthians, like, like any people of appetite, are just diving in and diving in, not recognizing what, it was true, what sex is truly for and, and the, the blessing and its purpose in a marital context. So whether it's pornography or Danielle Steele, you know, whatever it might be, just realize that if it affects us, it changes us, and, and, and it causes us to believe lies, which leads to a lack of intimacy later on, when in reality, what God is trying to give us is a, 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 a temporal, worldly, not worldly bad way, but in this world, taste of what heaven is supposed to be, the acceptance and the care and the love and the intimacy. Obviously not sexual intimacy in heaven, but intimacy in general. So we don't want to throw that away um, for some sort of cheap thrill, for some sort of feeling relieved sexually or something like that. We want to hold on and let God do something great in our life. Maybe later, or, or you know, if I'm married now, that to, to get rid of those other things, to, to experience it with my wife or my, my husband. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this true. It's always been true. Lord, you've always known what you're talking about. You've never said something trite or foolish or flippant. 
And we thank you for that. Thank you that you're trustworthy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those that um, are sensitive and kind to people that are searching. I pray we would not be condemners of those who are trying to be satisfied because they're not. But I pray, Lord, we would be those that are wise, Lord, wise about what you've decreed and what's good for us. I pray that we would be able to help those given to sexual sin, to be able to give hope to those who uh, have addiction. And Lord, that you would break through in hard places, embarrassing places in people's lives. Thank you for being kind and merciful. Thank you that you have great things for us. I pray for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you.